Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and historical crafts and making and baking things. So we usually start by talking about that. What have you been up to? I made soap. (laughs) I've I've seen pictures of this soap and it is excellent. Yeah, um... If you've seen our YouTube channel, which is Bread and Thread, I'm gradually uploading the old episodes. Um, You will have seen, I made a video about making soap from things like lard and tallow, like in the olden days. Um, And then I came up with my own oil blend for my particular brand of problem skin and made some fun, colourful scented soap. yeah, it's arcade carpet themed, so it's got, it's like, it's a dark colour with neons, and the first batch that I messed up was bubblegum scented, and then the good batch is tutti frutti, and it's got glitter on it, and I'm very pleased with it, and it lathers up really nice, and it's going to be really good for my skin, because it's got all vitamin E stuff, and intense moisturising, and lanolin, and my, my skin doesn't like being skin, so that's hopefully going to help. <laughs> I feel like anything would help if it was colours and glittery and smelt like an arcade carpet. I mean, I don't I don't want it to smell like an actual arcade carpet. That's <laughs> probably disgusting. Well, yeah, true. I hope it's not as sticky as a real arcade carpet. It it smells like the nostalgic memory of an arcade. <laughs> well, I I'm from Eastbourne and our arcade notoriously burned down a few years ago so ah see we we have europe's largest free-to-play arcade we we had our like engagement party there it was great oh my gosh (laughs) (laughs) so many soaps yeah there's currently like 30 soaps because of the historical ones and then the failed batch and then the successful batch all curing because it takes like a month for it to properly harden up. Oh, right. I didn't know that. So we, we just have one of those little folding tables in the corner of the living room covered in soap. <laughs> you have a soap corner. We do. And the living room just smells of, of like bubble gum and tutti frutti. It's great. Don't get on your soapbox at me. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. When when it's uh-huh. cured, I will send you some of the arcade carpet soap. I promise. Thank you. I would love that. <laughs> so what what have you been up to? Um, I have actually started and completed a project within a week, which is oh. a record for me. I know it doesn't happen often. Um, I made a woven belt for a a family friend who is a shepherd, and recently gave me some more fleeces from his sheep. So on is Monday... The, is the postman? Is the postman. <laughs> it is true, the postman who is wonderful. We're building up the like, law. I, I know. <laughs> the, the returning characters. Maybe I'll even get him on this podcast one day because he has... That would be amazing. Be, I know. He's got some great stories. We went to visit him, uh, me and my friend who is a weaving artist. Um... In fact, now that I've mentioned her, I am probably going to have to link to her. Her name is Mini Samanadu, and I'll I'll link her website. The 
Yeah, we'll put it in the show notes. Yes. Um, anyway, we went to visit him at his um, where he keeps the sheep. Um, and so his day job is being a postman and then his vocation is being a shepherd. Like he, he told us that that's kind of all he ever wanted to be. He was born on the farm next door and he, he just really is into shepherding. And he's he's been doing it for like quite a long time. Um, he's also been working in the, the village post office for like <laughs> quite a while, um, like several decades. It's, it's really lovely. Um, and yeah, so he has about... 300 sheep I think and he seems to know them all like oh, this one is the daughter of that one etc and he's got some amazing stories about the local shepherds uh, from back in the day and apparently there was this one guy who um, was still I mean it the kind of life that makes you strong and apparently there was this one guy that was like even still into his 80s he was still shearing sheep and like really strong and would come into the pub and just like clap you on the shoulder <laughs> really hard <laughs> and you just have to be like oh how are you doing um, like this really hench old man um yeah and uh, <laughs> and he showed us the process of shearing some sheep um and he was amazing he just it was done in under three minutes got it all off in one piece and like not a single scratch on the sheep um you know just just like running off into the field like perfectly happy so um yeah it was really really cool uh to see that and learn more about it and um and he was kind enough to give us some fleeces so i now have a uh, a pure Romney, Kent Romney fleece, uh, which is a really versatile wool. It's soft enough that you can use it for garments, probably not like right next to skin, but it's great for jumpers and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it's, it's still strong enough that it wears quite well. Um, and, you know, it's good, it's good for outerwear. And I have a, a Suffolk Romney Cross in a dark fleece. So I'll be doing some dyeing and um, doing some colour work with that as well, hopefully. Once I get everything processed and then skirted and combed and spun, which, you know, who knows how long that will take. But <laughs> they're, they're really great um, quality. And I'm really excited to get started on that. Um, yeah, so I made him a belt from the fleece that he gave me uh, last year. And I it was an inkle woven belt, so using my inkle loom, I'll put a picture of this. So, um, which is a, a loom that you use to weave small bands. Um, and I tried a Baltic weave pattern. Uh, so apparently these sort of come from patterns that were used in the Baltic area of Europe. Um, and lots of examples of these have been found. They're used on like folk costumes a lot, and it's it's a kind of weave where the threads that make up the pattern are slightly thicker than the other threads, and so it kind of stands out a bit. And that was really fun. So um, yeah, I, I I think he liked it, and it was great, and I feel very good about that. <laughs> very wholesome. So yeah, that is what I was doing. That is that is incredibly cool. 
you know how I become very, very interested in things? Yeah. Um, what with my neurotype and everything. Um, it's a thing. It's this a thing. episode's on soap. I made soap. I'm going to talk about soap. Soap, soap, soap. <laughs> I mean, it's a good thing that we have a podcast where people are in fact interested in listening to us talk about very specific uh, historical obsessions. I, I sure hope so, otherwise there's about a hundred people out there who should probably talk to someone. <laughs> so is this going to be about, like, all of soap? Ever? Um, that would sure be something. Um, I'm mostly going to talk about Europe, just because, well, partly because I, I need to have a cut off somewhere but uh, there's good there's going to be trips trips to other places okay i'm i'm excited to get yeah soap. like i i feel like a lot of our histories tend to be very eurocentric but also that's what we have stuff about the most in english and also we live in europe yeah that is what is easiest for us to research in just in terms of language limitations really yeah but hopefully like as as the podcast grows we will be able to get some cool guests on to talk about other places that would be very cool um so i am actually starting us off in mesopotamia oh because we have a soap recipe on a Babylonian clay tablet. Oh my goodness. Um, from over 4,000 years ago. <laughs> this is why I love history so much. Like, 4,000 yeah, year old soap. <laughs> this is why we studied archaeology. There's <laughs> so much cool stuff. Um, so. Soap, to make soap, you basically you need fat and you need um, an alkali, normally something like uh, lye or potash. Okay. This recipe uses uh, cassia oil, which I feel like would, would be quite pleasant compared to some of the soaps that I'm going to talk about, especially once we get up to the industrial era, quite frankly. Hmm, compared to like tallow, that sounds quite nice. Hmm. Um, there's also the Ebers Papyrus from about 1550 BC in Egypt, which talks about um, creating a soap made from a mix of animal and vegetable fat that was used both for bathing and for cleaning wool for weaving. Okay. The very, very multi-purpose soap in Egypt. Hmm. I... Are you going to be making any of these soaps? Because you can't tell me 4,000-year-old ancient soap recipe and then not make it. Um, I don't know if I can get hold of cassia oil. I'm definitely looking. Okay. Um, I am going to be making sunlight soap, but I'll talk about that later. Because that's 19th century. Um... Yeah, we also have um, 
a recipe from the reign of the last Babylonian king, which is quite cool. Um, talks about using cypress oil and sesame oil to make soap, quote, for washing the stones for the servant girls. Not stones. entirely sure what these stones are, hmm. but just because I don't have access to the article. Apparently they're going to smell quite nice. Yeah, that's... Yeah, because cypress is going to be a very green smell and then sesame oil is quite nutty, so I imagine that's hmm. going to be a delicious smelling soap. Oh. Um, and yeah, in Palestine we have uh, lard and suet being used. Okay. One like a, a little bit more on the animal fat side. Yeah, which is interesting because apparently it tends to make a harder soap if you use a fat that's a solid at room temperature. So right. the Palestinian soaps would have been harder than, say, the Babylonian. Okay. Makes sense, because you use oil to soften up various creams and balms, right? Mm. Interestingly, there's a theory that the first soaps were probably animal fat made by accident. Um, oh. From just fat dripping, dripping from you know, something being cooked above a fire into the ashes. Hmm. Which oh, I, I, I can definitely see a human finding a weird substance in, in the remains of a cooking fire and is going, oh, I'm just going to play with this. <laughs> Wonder what it does with water. Because humans are just like that. Yeah. Um... But yeah, you have in the Levant and other sort of Mediterranean areas, you have much more use of olive oil, which okay. um, you might know if you're interested or just like covered the Romans in school. Um, the Romans and the ancient Greeks, rather than using soap on their bodies, they did have soap, but it was more for laundry. Okay. Um, but would use just olive oil on the skin and then scrape it off and it'd take all the grossness with it. I Yeah, this is bringing back some memories of learning about this. Like, I think I've seen some of the... That, like, they're like curved scrapers. Yeah, the uh, strigil or strigil. Ooh. Don't know how to pronounce Latin. Um, <laughs> it sort of looks like a sickle, but that you just use on your body to scrape the mix of olive oil and dirt and sweat and grossness off your body. If it um, works. Yeah. But uh, Pliny and Galen both talk about using soap made from animal fat and ashes or lye extracted from ashes for laundry soap. But, uh, apparently, according to Galen, the best soap came from the Germanic tribes. Okay. What was their soap? Well, that that was also an animal fat soap. I guess they just, maybe they purified it more? He huh? doesn't say why, just their soap was the best, and then the Gaulish soap was the second <laughs> best. 
Maybe it's the whole being a foreign import thing, right? Like, I don't know. Cause the, the prestige of like French wine or... Possibly, but the Romans were kind of the reverse of that in a lot of ways. It was like, well, our stuff is obviously the best. <laughs> oh, that is true. But I guess it's like, if you're going to buy soap from somewhere because, you know, the olive oil isn't good enough for you, you should get the Germanic soap. <laughs> Well, I mean, they do talk a lot about, like, oh, yeah, Rome is the best, uh, our stuff is the best, but they were still importing a lot of foreign goods, so... <laughs> yeah. Interestingly, Galen talked about prescribing soap for getting the impurities out of your clothes and off your body, so kind of... Huh. Kind of making that connection between hygiene and health, which, you know, does make sense for this period. You the ancient Greeks did have a health goddess literally called Hygieia, which is where, is that I where, think we, get is where we get the word hygiene from. Yeah. Um, interestingly, she had a sister called Panacea. Oh. Um, yeah, and then, you know, the classic thing in Europe happens where the Roman Empire collapses and everyone goes back to what they were doing before. Which, in this case, probably wasn't actually that different. It's just, you get the animal fats left over from various processes, you extract the life from the ashes, you mix it together, you make soap. Mm -hmm. um, meanwhile, the Islamic Golden Age was happening, and they were like, hey, what if we make olive oil soap? And that'll be nice. Um, to the point that once what I don't want to say civilization because it's a very loaded term, but you know what I mean mm. if I say that um, starts coming back in Europe. We get um, people like Charlemagne using oil-based soaps, and you, you very quickly get, by the 9th century, you have this separation of tallow soap that the, the, the women of the house make is the cheap soap for the poor people, and the posh people are importing their olive oil soap from the Middle East and later on getting, getting soap makers who make olive oil soap and it becomes this status thing of this is my soft olive soap rather than the hard, smelly tallow soap. Oh, okay. I feel like that's something that, like, probably continues. Soap being the fancy one. Yeah, I mean, in the 15th century, you've, also, you've got almost an industrialised production of olive oil soap in places like uh, Marseille, Venice, Antwerp, and Castile. Um, okay. So to the point that Castile soap became the phrase for fancy olive oil soap and is still actually a phrase now that just means soft, nice, white soap. Right. Yeah, I've heard of Castile soap, especially in like Victorian sources. Mm. Yeah, that's basically the good stuff. <laughs> um, 
And it's still being used interchangeably with detergent because we don't have specialised clothing soap at this point. You basically, you grate your bar of soap into the water and you do laundry with it. Sorry, let's check in my notes. And I mean, in this period as well, you have a lot of people not bathing, as we would describe it. You sort of just wipe yourself down because of concerns about getting diseases from water. So instead you have, you know, you have your underclothing that you change every day and you wash that with soap. But your actual body, you just scrub with water. Yeah, so Castile soap was the sort of the nice, white, bubbly, clean soap. Whereas everyone else is making do with what they make at home or what they could get cheaper from places that made it with lard or tallow. Um, this is where I would talk about the soap tax in about 1715, but I'm genuinely struggling to find sources on it that don't basically just go, and then everyone was filthy. Yeah, the, the soap tax was basically... The whichever George it was at the time, um, and his government being trying to get as much money as they could because the Georgians were basically always at war and also spent a lot of money. So okay. there were huge levies on soap makers. They could they were only legally allowed to make huge batches, which meant that a lot of companies basically couldn't keep going and you basically couldn't make couldn't make smaller batches to just sell locally okay to the to the point that the soap pans would be locked up so that people wouldn't make extra illegal soap oh my goodness but again this is a time when people people would not have been filthy because of this they would have again been washing yeah, have undergarments that are what we would consider covering up everything. And you'd wash those every day. People in the past were not as filthy as people think, and I need everyone listening to understand this. Yeah, people have always had some way of keeping themselves clean, right? Yeah, it's like they didn't have deodorant and stuff like that, but also everyone smelled like that. People just had a normal level of it's been a a hard day where I've been sweating smell. They didn't stink. Yeah, like sweating isn't unhygienic. Sweating it's just is normal. People have different tolerances for smelling exactly. that, I guess. Yeah. People's tolerances are higher because deodorant and making you feel ashamed of normal bodily functions didn't exist yet. <laughs> but they washed their clothes every day. They changed their clothes every day. Mm. And that was what kept them clean. And this is turning into a rant. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. Um, no. Yeah, people listening to this understand that. <laughs> you you, like you guys listen know. to this podcast, you get it. Yeah, you get it. <laughs> so, soap. Yes. Um, 
So eventually that gets repealed and small-scale soap production resumes and there's all sorts of companies popping up making soap, normally from a mixture of potash and tallow or lard. Um, and then the Lever Brothers come along. Uh, you've probably heard of Unilever, which is the company that seems to make every cosmetic product. Definitely heard of that, yep. Um, so in the 1880s, they established a small soapworks in Warrington, which is in it's in sort of the Lancashire Cheshire border. Um, that soap factory, incidentally, was still open making laundry soap until last year. Oh wow! Which is quite cool. Yeah. Um, so they start making soap from. Things like pine pine kernel oil and later palm oil rather than tallow, which makes a softer, very lathery soap um, that they called honey soap and then sunlight soap. Um, led, led to them making a lot of money because this was cheap, nice soap. Mm-hmm. Um and then end up setting up further factories and building a workers' town called Port Sunlight, um, which is in Merseyside. And we will do a separate episode on places like Port Sunlight and Bourneville because they're fascinating. Oh, um, yeah. Sort of early sort company of... towns, but set up for... Um, uh, but depending on your perspective, either altruistic or paternalistic reasons. Sort of quote-unquote philanthropic company towns, yeah. Yeah. Um, and Port Sunlight especially was very... This is a model village where we think about our workers' welfare. Don't look at our workers elsewhere in the British Empire where we have literal slavery right up until 1945. Mm. We've got great working conditions in, in Merseyside and it's great. And we're definitely not pushing for expansion of the British Empire throughout the late 19th century so we can have access to cheap palm oil. Okay. Yeah, there's some stuff hiding under the carpet there. Yeah. Um, so yeah, eventually they merge with a Dutch margarine company to form Unilever. <laughs> okay, that is not how I expected Unilever to have been founded. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but um, yeah, the Lever Brothers Soap Company is, is widely considered the first sort of industrial scale company. Okay. Um, sort of on an international level. Wow. They, I'm going to read you this list of soap companies that they acquired because there's so many. AF Pears, Pears Soap, still a thing. John Knight of London, Gossages, Watsons, Crossfields, Hazelhurst and Sons, and and Hudson's. Um, they founded a town called Leverville in the Congo because of the amount of business that they were doing there. Uh, they had their own palm oil plantation. Oh. Yeah, there's a... 
there's a lot of stuff going on there. Um, yeah, so some of their, their soap names, though. There's Sunlight Soap. There's also Life Boy, Lux, and Vim. I like which, Vim. <laughs> Vim is household cleaning product, and I, I just I love the name. <laughs> it's very 1950s uh, comic, isn't it? Like, put some Vim in your soap. It really is. Um, and yeah, about a decade after the founding of Lever Brothers, you have uh, Johnson inventing palm olive as a liquid soap. Okay. Which is a big deal for domestic cleaning. Um, and then yeah. obviously, eventually, we also get liquid hand soap, which I'm sure everyone is intimately familiar with after the past couple of years yeah this episode is also like kind of uh topical <laughs> still by covid um and then now there seems there's a movement towards smaller producers again which i think there is for a lot of stuff just as we start to look at more more of the sort of the impact of capitalism and mm. big businesses um and one thing that seems to be becoming popular in some circles actually is african black soap oh what is that um which is there's various ones that are very very old um i'm not sure how old because we don't have written sources for a lot of these because it's it's people like uh the Yoruba people in Nigeria, um Ghanan tribes making soap from things like um the hamwood tree. Um there's also the Igbo people making a soap whose name translates to soap you can scoop because it's very, very soft like that um but african black soap has been found to have actually antimicrobial properties more so than wow. regular soap um including against potentially things like mrsa wow that sounds handy to have in a hospital yeah and frankly african black soap is also really pretty like there's one called um Dudu Osun, which honestly looks like it's made of wood. It's sort of dark and streaked, and it's just really pretty. Awesome. Um, that tends to be made with things like uh, coconut oil and shea butter, and the ash portion, which supplies the alkali, is things like uh, cocoa pods and shea tree bark and plantain skins. It's very much a sort of what you can get soap which sounds exotic because of what we're used to as ingredients, but is also apparently a very, very good soap. It it does sound very nice. Yeah. Um, I would love to try some at some point. Yeah, definitely. I've got to look this up. Um, but yeah, hopefully I will make some sunlight soap in the next couple of months. Um, that's a very quick run through the history of soap. I'll probably do a separate one for detergents at some point and definitely one for company towns. 
Yeah, that's an interesting one. Awesome. Uh, that is a lot of things I did not know about soap. Like soap is one of those things that, like you said about um, there being a trend towards smaller producers now, and um, you know, like artisan soap is a thing, right? I feel like it's it's one of those things that is easier for people to form a very small business around because you don't need a huge amount of space to do it. You can do it out of your house. Yeah. I mean, of of course, you do then get places like Lush, which is very much a commodification of that concept. Yeah. So this is late stage capitalism and everything can and will be commodified. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. I feel like Um, I get political a lot on this podcast. I think we're quite open about that though it's yeah i mean history is very political <laughs> you can't really have a, a completely like unbiased unpolitical history history media like it, it's all about whichever way you analyze it is going to be in, informed by what you want to present so yeah history is interpretation yeah. <laughs> Our interpretation just happens to be very angry about capitalism. And colonialism. <laughs> but yeah, the the Lieber brothers are sure an adventure. Hmm. Yeah. I I had not heard about that stuff before. It admittedly I do not know a lot about soap. I just vaguely knew about Port Sunlight. Um, well, yeah, ge- generally, I think Unilever likes to talk about the Port Sunlight part and less about the 20th century slavery part. Yeah, I mean, I can see why, but also that's, that's kind of an important thing that yeah. should be known about. Now you know. <laughs> If you want to help me buy oils to make various historical soaps, we do have a Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash bread and thread, where you can get access to a Discord server and recipes. And if you donate at the higher level, which I think is called Cake, I think we went Bread Brioche Cake as our level names. Um, We'll make an episode on anything you want. Anything. Anything. More soap. (laughs) More soap. Talk more about soap. <laughs> we also have a Twitter at Bread and Thread, uh, where we post upcoming episodes, teasers for them, um, various things from the show notes, and um, we just generally try to retweet food and food history related things. Yeah, we are also on Tumblr and YouTube now as well as Bread and Thread. Oh, we're on. We have a social media sweep now. <laughs> <laughs> we're in all the places we are everywhere you look you cannot get away from us hello i'm mod pencil from probably bad rpg ideas if you'd like to hear discussions of ideas such as what if in my urban fantasy game magic turns out to not be real and what is the best rules for an oh then listen to the probably bad podcast which is available on everywhere podcasts are and also youtube or check out our tumblr and twitter
So what is what is this week's local order? You you wouldn't tell me because you wanted me to live react to what it is. Uh, okay, so let's so, start out, um, and we'll get to the the part, the good part okay. later. Um, <laughs> so on a few of the local larders that we've done, um, something has turned up. Um, about a, a food museum, like a lot of these regional foods have just a random kind of specific dedicated museum to them, like usually really small, but sometimes bigger. Mm -hmm. um, and I thought that was quite interesting that people so loved this food that they went and made a museum out of it. And a lot of these are just kind of pop-up things or things that people have collected all this stuff for ages and then turned it into a display. Um, like really kind of community like based museums which is really cool and, and so I thought there must be more of those around so I went looking for some and sure enough there are in fact quite a lot of very specific food museums around the world some really big some tiny so uh, we've talked about the uh, the Choco Frito Museum in Setúbal, Portugal. Um, we've talked about the uh, Spätzle Museum in Germany. Um, I think there's been a couple more. And yeah, so I went looking for some more. And um, the world does not, not disappoint. My first thought was the Kimchi Museum in Seoul, South Korea. Um, I feel like kimchi is something that deserves a whole episode because there is mm -hmm. a lot to dive into there. So this museum, I so this this uh, local larder isn't uh, necessarily a regional food, but it's a uh, a food museum, a regional food museum. It is in San Bernardino, California, on Route sixty six, USA. And it is a McDonald's memorabilia museum. Okay. Uh, yep. <laughs> it is. Um, it's run by a third generation Japanese American um, called Albert Okura, and he already owned a fast food chain. Um, that he founded in 1984. Uh, but he was also kind of a fan of, like, he was just quite into fast food and, like, a fan of various uh, fast food restaurants and, and the history of them. And uh, specifically, he was quite into the history of McDonald's. And I think it's a little-known fact that the original... McDonald's fast food restaurant that opened in 1940 is now is, is now not there anymore. Um, and this it's museum is that seems like a place a lot of people would want to go. It it is, and in fact they do because this museum is on the site of the original McDonald's restaurant. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. So this guy, it, it just kind of fell out of history. So the original restaurant run by the McDonald brothers. Um, and and in fact, um, one of the reasons that, that it doesn't, it 
doesn't exist anymore and hasn't for a long time is because after the restaurant was bought by Ray Kroc and franchised and turned into the mega corporation that we know today, um, the they had they were forced to give up name of the original McDonald's as it was now like a trademark. Mm -hmm. uh, so they had to change the name of their restaurant and, and then McDonald's opened a McDonald's like it down the street. Uh, so there you go. Um, <laughs> but wait, so uh, they basically got Amazoned by their own company. Yeah, kind of. Um, so Albert Acura decided this was kind of sad and ended up buying the site and moving the office of his fast food chain there, um, which is called Juan Polo, by the way. Uh, apparently, it's a Mexican-themed chicken restaurant. Anyway. Um, I don't know, maybe that's, maybe that's like really popular in America. I don't know, but I'd never heard of it before I looked into this. Um, so, so he has also collected like loads and loads of memorabilia of the original McDonald's, um, like the oh, original so like pre-franchise stuff. Yeah, pre-franchise. So they, they had, I think they did have like several restaurants. Um, but this was before, you know, national franchise. And mm -hmm. they've got loads and loads of memorabilia. Um, and it just turned into this unofficial museum. That is, it's one of these sort of 66, you know, museums that, that you can stop at. Um, and it's free to go around. And that's unusual over there. Yeah, definitely. And one of the reasons, in fact, that it is free to go around is that this entire thing unlicensed. Illegal McDonald's Museum? Not affiliated with the McDonald's Corporation in any way, shape or form. Illegal McDonald's Museum? <laughs> no, it is, it's not illegal. He's very careful to keep it within the letter of the law. <laughs> and there is nothing McDonald's can do about it. Barely legal McDonald's Museum. <laughs> it is Fairly legal McDonald's museum. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, he is able to do this because, like, he doesn't claim any affiliation with the McDonald's Corporation. Like, it's entirely just a collection of memorabilia that happens to be on the site of the original McDonald's restaurant. <laughs> 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 um. Yeah, he, he like, doesn't even advertise it. The link to the website is just the website for his fast food business. <laughs> but it is on TripAdvisor. Um, <laughs> yeah. It is fantastic, and I kind of want to go here. Um, <laughs> apparently McDonald's are like, they're not too pleased about this. But yeah, he's so within the law that there's very little they can do about it. Um, yeah, that's going on the list of places to go if this podcast <laughs> ever gets big. We're going to the barely legal McDonald's museum. Yeah, but, oh, but it's so it's so adorable though because he's just really into this stuff. And not only has he collected a lot of memorabilia, people have donated stuff that they have. But it's just this kind of community-built, unofficial McDonald's museum. And That's they have so wonderful. all sorts of stuff. There's like um, things, they've got tiles from one of the original restaurants. They've got like 
it, uh, utensils that were used at them. There's decorations from them. There's just like everything you can think of. It, yeah, it looks. I mean, some of this from going back to like 1940. Um, it's like all of this memorabilia, like statues, mascots, y you name it. Cool. That's very cool, but I th the coolest thing about it is just the phrase barely legal McDonald's movie. <laughs> it absolutely is. Um, and I, I thought that I would perhaps read out some, um, some snippets from the TripAdvisor reviews. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> uh, so here we go. Here we go. Um, time. <laughs> Holy cow, I had no idea how much McDonald's stuff was out there. I loved seeing the old plates and cups we used to collect and all the old playground equipment we used to play on at our Indo play place in Ohio. Uh, not affiliated with McDonald's, but a fantastic collection of Mickey D's kitsch and memorabilia, including a section on international McD's toys and giveaways from several different countries. The outside of the museum is great also. I, I love that reviewer number two takes the time to mention that they're not affiliated. <laughs> I know, I liked that. <laughs> uh, whether you want to see examples of failed food items, early Happy Meals, or get the true and complete history of McDonald's, or like me, all of the above, it is well worth getting off the I-15 for half an hour. Oh. The original... People Gone. are having so much fun. But I know, people are just loving this. It's fantastic. Um, oh, this is one of my favourites. Um, this is the original McDonald's site and museum. It had all the items of McDonald's from the beginning, and it continues with new ones as well. There were all kinds on the walls with items that was used in the past. There was a table to eat. However, they don't cook here. It is only a museum. They have a grill, lots of pictures, items from kids. Had a Wurlitzer for music. Don't know what that is. Small item for kids. Remember the Happy Meal? Coca-Cola! Quite a lot here. It is all in this original McDonald's site museum and McDonald's site and museum. Worthwhile to see, it is completely free. That is poetic. It is. I, it, it's kind of like a haiku. <laughs> Just a really long haiku. Oh. I enjoy Coca-Cola. <laughs> That's fantastic. Uh, that, that one is by Robbie GC from Toronto, Canada. There you go. You're famous on this podcast. I think a Wurlitz <laughs> is one of those like old, old style organs. Is it? <gasps> There's a McDonald's organ? Oh, yeah, I it's like an old-fashioned old electric piano thing. They have one at Blackpool Tower. Oh, wow. Yeah, I, most of these reviews just seem to boil down to this is incredibly kitschy and I loved it. I I need to go to this place and this is my <laughs> favourite local larder. Even though it is not a food. I'm just I'm in my happy place right now. I yeah, I, I thought you guys would enjoy us. <laughs> <laughs> this is the only place I know of to get a fried apple pie anymore. There you go. Wait, so do they have food or don't they? 
don't know. If we have any listeners in California, we need a report. Absolutely. Gotta know. Please, go to this place. I will, I will send you homemade soap if you give us a report from the McDonald's Museum. <laughs> this one. We came to the birthplace of the McDonald's food chain and were not disappointed. They have many fine artefacts and a nicely chronicled history of how this food giant got its beginnings. They are fine artefacts. <laughs> so, if if you do have a, a review of the Barely Legal McDonald's Museum to send us, or you want to suggest an episode or a local larder, or you just want to say hi or complain about the Lever Brothers in our inbox, um, you can email breadandthreadpodcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can also tweet us at breadandthread. And as we said, we do have a Patreon, which I think my current Patreon goal is for us to get enough money for me to get the oils for the historical soaps. I want to make Babylonian soap so much, you guys. Oh, yes! Um, so that's patreon.com slash bread and thread. Um, thank you for listening, and we will see you next time. <laughs>